You know, I'm still getting used to being called Pastor Adam. It's kind of strange, you know. My age, I'm not quite used to all of the titles. Uh, and I don't know if you ever get used to them. But certainly when I was in my uh, mid-20s, I was still getting used to the idea of being called Mr. Anderson. So imagine every week I would get this call when I worked for the state. Be Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson. It's Ellie. I, you remember me? I'm here in this nursing home. I, I uh, just wanted to remind you that I'm here. Uh, Mr. Anderson, I'm, I'm interested in going home. Mr. Anderson, can you get a hold of me? I'll talk to you later. Hearing Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson a few times, it was strange for me. Um, and Ellie was somebody that I had known for a while. Now I want to preface this by saying in all of this, sometimes when we have people go into nursing homes or we have people that we care for, sometimes it's exactly the right thing to do. But sometimes, like every good thing that exists, there are some times that those things are abused and not used well. And the story of my friend Ellie uh, is one of those examples. Ellie would call my friend George and I week after week after week. George and I were like, uh, we were thick as thieves. And our job at the time was to help people move from nursing homes when they weren't supposed to be there and help them live in community well. We had different tools, but we were like, a, we were like partners in crime. Week after week after week, Ellie would call me and George. Oh, Mr. Pelletier, Mr. Anderson, it's Ellie. As if after six or seven times you don't know who the person is, right? And I'll be honest, there were occasions when I would see the number. I'd see the number flash across my, uh, my caller ID, and I'd let it go to voicemail. Because I knew what it was going to be. It was going to be the same thing. Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson, I just want to talk to you. I'm, I'm ready to go home. But she really struggled to get home. She had what's called a court-appointed guardian. Again, in some places this is good, but in some places it isn't. If you don't know what a court-appointed guardian is, is that there are times when the state itself deems it necessary, because back in uh, early um, English common law that most of our law is set on, there's this idea that at times... The state needs to act in some sort of parental oversight. Uh, and so at times, the state will deem that there are certain individuals who are no longer able to care for themselves, and so they're appointed a guardian. And sometimes it's uh, a family member. Sometimes we're all required to care for those that we love, and we have to oversee all of their needs. But sometimes when somebody doesn't have anybody else, the court can see fit to assign an attorney guardian for an individual. And in doing so, and this is a quote when you start to sort of figure this out, it removes some fundamental rights and transfers the individual's voice and decision-making power to the substitute. And it can affect all sorts of decisions. It can affect income and assets, healthcare and treatment, marriage, voting, sexual choices, participation in social networks, and routine lifestyle cho choices. At its best, it can keep somebody healthy and thriving. And at worst, it can remove the entirety of what it means to be a person for somebody. 
So again, in some cases, this is good. Sometimes many of us no longer have the ability to make the best decisions for ourselves, and so we need somebody who loves us to make those decisions on our behalf. That wasn't necessarily the case with Ellie. Ellie was assigned an attorney guardian who at one point in his career bragged about the fact that he thought he had more people that he was a guardian for than anybody else in the country. He literally had hundreds of people that he oversaw. Now listen, I'm struggling with two kids to make the best decisions as their guardian. How do you do hundreds of people? The answer is you probably don't. And in Ohio, all across the country, and in Ohio, we had a couple cases, and oftentimes as part of my job for the state, I would end up working with these attorney guardians who would like to brag about the fact that they could make plenty of money and all they had to do was make sure that those folks were safe and stable. A couple years ago, the New Yorker came out with an article and talked about this exact thing and was mentioning the fact that some people would be put on such strong medications in the nursing home that they were a shell of themselves. After just six or seven months before, being able to live life independently on their own. But for the attorney guardian, it means that they're stable. It means that they're safe. It means that they're not going anywhere. And so as a result, one can liquidate their assets. One can ensure that all of the money that they need, and they can charge a healthy um, fee in order to be able to facilitate the needs of this individual. Again, I don't want to say that everyone is bad. But the couple I had to deal with were not always the best. Because it was fascinating to me how important it was to keep the person stable when you knew underneath it what it meant was it's a steady income stream. Well, so long as this person doesn't end up hurting themselves, we could still make our money. And so you can imagine when I was in a nursing home and I was talking about Ellie, and this was always something very fascinating, that we would talk about Ellie without Ellie in the room. We get in all the details of her history. We bring up her mismanaged diabetes and how, as a result, she was, uh, she was amputated, had a leg amputated. We would bring up the fact that she had significant previous drug use, which also facilitated some of his, her concerns. We would bring up the fact that she had a past that, where um, she... Um, had dealt with prostitution in the past. We'd bring all these things up as if those were the things that were the reason that they that Ellie was staying in a nursing home. And week after week, I'd get the same call. Mr. Anderson, it's Ellie. Mr. Anderson, I just want to go home. Mr. Anderson, I, I don't know who this person is. It's telling you to make these decisions. He didn't talk to me. Mr. Anderson, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I don't typically talk about that time in my life. 
I don't typically talk about that time in my life because those stories are still very raw to me, right? You know, sometimes you have experiences in your life with people and it just, they almost become tattoos on your heart. And you carry them. Because what I struggled with with people like Ellie is that George and I, my friend George, we tried so hard to find the human in those individuals. We wanted to find the spark of who that individual was, what they were called to be. And every time we go to one of these meetings, what we'd hear is this attorney telling us that we shouldn't bother. We knew more about those individuals in the couple months that we'd care for them than that attorney would know in years. And with some of the folks that we worked with, you would have thought it was the dumbest thing we could have possibly done, right? Ellie, at one point, this is ridiculous, at one point she was on oxygen and she, for whatever reason, didn't always remember that it's not a good idea to smoke when one has an oxygen tank. Ellie, not wise. You're going to want to think about that if you're living independently again. Even if it didn't mean for a time that these individuals would be the most stable in community, what we thought is that in order to honor who they are, it was worth taking the risk. We would often talk about the dignity of risk, that there's something meaningful about allowing somebody the opportunity to fail and being there to support them as they rise back up. That sometimes the most loving human thing we can do is let people fall and not to leave them alone. Folks like Ellie which isn't her real name, by the way, and countless others are the reason for me that passages like today in Luke 15 are so striking. There are people, and I will tell you that's still happening today in spite of the fact that I don't do this work anymore. I know the fact that there are people who are still literally dying in places that they shouldn't be wanting to have a chance for agency in their own lives. But oftentimes, the folks that had the hardest time giving the help that they needed were the folks who had guardians who had no interest in them as people, right? The people who I often had the hardest time helping transition were not the folks who had guardians who were family. It was the folks who had attorney guardians who didn't really have much interest that were more interested in that individual as a paycheck than as a person. And it was only about what that person could offer the guardian and not the other way around. The guardian, it turned out, was at the center of the story. And the person who we were talking about was far out at the margin. And again, like I said, I can't tell you how many times we would sit in meetings and no one would think it would be a good idea to invite the individual whose life hung in the balance seems kind of silly. 
And certainly, for some guardians, the idea of people like Ellie being out in the community seemed foolish, but it meant that they could be who they were. And we did not abandon them. We would wrap supports around them. We would find folks in the community who would care for them. We would do everything we could to link them with family. How often do any of us sit in judgment of the shepherd and his foolishness as one of the 99 in the middle of the flock? How often do we sit as the guardians in the center of the story and invite people not to go out to the, to the fringes to say, hey, this person needs to come home. This person deserves a chance to be home. If we can get 99 folks generally out in community, why do we need to worry about the one? Well, Jesus does. How often do we wonder about the woman seeking the coin? I mean, 10 coins, you still got nine? You still probably get a pack of gum for nine coins as opposed to 10? That's in the ground. We'll find it later. It's cool. Probably drop something when we were coming down to the grocery store, and you know how coins tend to roll under the couch. Probably the next time we do some cleaning, we'll find it. You know, maybe the next time that we feel like going to do some mission project, maybe we'll go find somebody who needs some help. Oh, well, you know. Those folks that are kind of on the margin out to the side, well, if... Uh, we get to them. That's great. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus tears the house apart for one dime. For one coin. For one person who had been addicted to drugs and mismanaged their diabetes and couldn't for some reason be able to be out on their own. Jesus still was going to find her and say, welcome home. It seems as though I think that we like to determine who the sinner is at the margins while forgetting that we too have been on the edges We too have portions of us that have been in the wilderness, that have been at the fringes, and we get to be in the crowd. We like to point out all the issues with folks like Ellie, even if they're not part of our club, our flock. And so as a result, it means that the crux of this story is lost, that God seeks the lost sheep and God seeks the lost coin. And if we only leave it to the idea that it's just the sinner rejoicing and forgetting that we all are sinners, we're allowing ourselves to be the main part of the story and not letting God and God's unrelenting love for us take the four. It's why so often when we talk about the prodigal story, which is the one next, we all want to focus on everybody else but perhaps the father whose unrelenting, unforgiving love was for 
his lost son. We forget sometimes that like in Exodus, the story that we heard, that God, God's self at times will turn and change God's mind. That Moses says, hey, this is probably not a good idea that you're going to kill the folks that you said were the promised folks. Doesn't seem like a good idea. Remember all these folks who have been part of this legacy? And God's like, I do love these people. The unmoving God has his mind changed. If God can do that to those who are lost on other margins, I think we can try. Because we too, like the psalmist said, are so beautifully made. I wish I could tell you that Ellie's story had a happy ending. I mean, I have multiple stories where we were able to help people go into community, find a place to call home. And they're still living out in community. I have stories about folks who were, everybody told us that they would not be successful out in community. They lasted for years. Ellie made it out for a little bit. Had a medical decline. And that was enough for the attorney guardian to say no more. And so Ellie died in a nursing home on the west side of Columbus and is buried in a grave. It's unmarked. I wanted so bad to say goodbye and no one knew where she was. Mr. Anderson, I want to go home, stopped. And those that centered the story around them won the day. That's our broken world, friends. But who can we be tomorrow? Who can we be next week? At times, we should stand up for those that are on the margins and say, come home. What can I find for you to help you be at home? Are you a sheep who's lost in the wilderness? Come home. Are you a coin under a couch? Come home. That's the kingdom of God here on earth. And so I invite you to think today, are you a guardian? Guarding the center of the story with your own life, keeping people out, or are you ready to be a shepherd? Seeking the one who so desperately wants to be home. Because that's where God is today. Thanks be to God.